To Professor Barnabas Tithe, Visiting Professor Balliol College, Oxford. Written this 13th day of July, in the year of our Lord, 1556. Greetings. My dear friend, I write in haste and with regret that I must depart without a proper leave-taking. Cambridge is alive with accusations of heresy. Poor Tom Gillespie faces death by burning, for nothing more than questioning the use of a prayer-book to mend a fractured wrist. All those of us who practice medicine in accordance with the highest science, abjuring the superstitions of the Church, are in like peril. With a secret such as mine, I am doubly in jeopardy. Already there is a pamphlet circulating that states that I am in possession of a blue stone skull in the shape of an unfleshed man's head, and that I use it to gaze upon the stars. In our current climate, even so much would see me burn, but it cannot be long ere someone links the heartstone with my healing of the sick, which would, I greatly fear, lead to the stone's destruction as well as mine. I leave, therefore, on the evening tide in the company of others who share my peril. But before I go, I must tell you that I have been in close communion these past three weeks with Dr. John Dee, who has lately been astrologer to the Princess Elizabeth in her exile, and has become the second of my teachers, behind only yourself. Dr. D has been most assiduous in showing me how the twin sciences of medicine and astrology may be brought together to hasten the restoration of the afflicted. He has looked long and deep into the tissue of the blue heartstone that has been my family's heritage, and is of the opinion that it is of an age far greater than the oldest relics of Christendom. It is, he thinks, one of many that were birthed together in the temples of the heathen ancients, and sent forth to the world for the greater benefit of mankind. He believes that there are those who fear the greater good that will be wrought by these stones in years to come, and therefore seek their destruction. Thus I have enemies of which I know naught, who will seek me out wherever I may go, and will threaten the core of my life. I am ashamed to confess that I have been in possession of the stone for a decade, and yet am ignorant of its true nature. This ignorance may be my death. It is pursuit of learning, therefore, as much as fear, that drives me from England, to seek the help of any who might educate me as to the stone's purpose and my own. In this regard, Dr. D. has observed my part of fortune and the turning of my natal son, and assures me that I will return to England at some future time, when the climate is less dangerous. I wish to believe him, and shall do so, knowing that only thus may I see you again. Until then, I must take my fortunes in France. I carry from Dr. D. his letter of recommendation to a friend whom he would trust with his own life and mine. With that, I take my leave. Know that I miss you greatly, and will return to Beads and to you when time and life allow. Cedric Owen, Physician, 
Master of the Arts, Bede's College, 1543, and Doctor of Philosophy, 1555. Our destiny exercises its influence over us even when, as yet, we have not learned its nature. It is our future that lays down the law of our today. Friedrich Nietzsche Beneath Ingleborough Fell, Yorkshire Dales, May 2007 Because it was her wedding gift, Stella came out of the tunnel first, filthy, wet, and shivering hot cold from the effort of the last fifty-metre uphill haul, she crawled on her belly, pulling herself face down into the empty blackness beyond. She moved slowly, keeping taut the umbilical line that linked her to Kit, feeling with her hands for the quality of the footing, then shuffling forward no farther than the spilled light from her head torch. Like the tunnel, the cave was of chalk, her gloved hands pressed on stone, washed smooth by century upon patient century of water. Her torch revealed bright trickles of damp everywhere, washing over flat, undulating limestone. Beyond the splash of yellow light was unknown territory, as likely to be a ledge and a bottomless fall as a flat cave floor. With cold, stiff fingers, she established safety set a bolt into the wall by the mouth of the tunnel, flipped into it and tugged the rope to let Kit know that she had stopped and not to pay out more rope. By the light of her headlamp, she checked her compass and her watch, then marked the incline and her estimate of its length and direction with wax pencil on the chart she kept in her chest pocket. Only after she had done all these things did she turn and look up and round, and send the thread of her torch into the vast cathedral space Kit had found for her. My God! Kit, come and look! She spoke to herself. He was too far back to hear. She tugged twice on the rope and felt the single answering twitch and then sudden slack as he began to move towards her. Switching off her headlamp, Stella stood in the roaring silence and let Kit's gift stand still in all its vast, black perfection around her so that she could remember it for the rest of her life. Marriage is fine for the rest of the world, but I want to find you a present that will last us forever, Stell. Something to remember when the magic of now has grown into quiet domesticity. What is it in the world that you want most, dearest? that will let you love me for eternity. He had said it in Cambridge, in his river room, on the morning before they had gone to the registrar with their two witnesses and made themselves legal in the eyes of the world.